0: Everybody. welcome back to the thinking theologically podcast the show where we teach you how and why you should think theologically I'm one of your hosts Jack Dodge and joined by our now master resident theologian and training Spencer Shaw Spencer how you doing
1: yeah that's what you have to call me now master master uh, but I'm doing good considering what you just said that my thesis is done I have now graduated finally after five years, nine mm. years at Oklahoma Christian, I have my master's.
0: Oh, okay, yeah.
1: It's it's, it's been a long time, but it, it, it's done now.
0: All done and uh waiting to see what happens next.
1: <laughs> yeah, PhD work comes next. M- maybe I mean the hope would be the next time we record, I might have a PhD related announcement. There you go to make. Uh, Kind of what I'm hoping we'll we'll see. Um,
0: How are you supposed to go pro in golf when you're constantly yeah doing I know. school? I, know.
1: Right. I don't know. It, it'll <laughs> it'll it'll happen. It, it might end up just being the senior tour. It might take a little while, mm. but
0: yeah, that's fair. You can play golf for a long time. No worries. Okay. No worries with that. <laughs> well, everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Here uh, we are continuing our. Series on uh, the Lord's Supper here, the the work that uh, Spencer put into uh, for his uh, master's thesis. So uh, we're continuing to work through uh, those things there. Hopefully, we'll have maybe the full version of the written thing available at some time for people who might be interested.
1: Um, yeah, we'll. I have
0: a copy. We'll see. I'll let everybody know if it's worth it. Yeah, or not.
1: I've I'm <laughs> I've I've been. Uh, it it's been thrown around and discussed the possibility of publication. So uh, we'll we'll see. Um, that would be fun. What 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 happens there? But when something happens, you know, we'll be sure to pass that information on. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Um, so we're continuing on with our our Lord's Supper conversation. Today's lesson in particular, uh, how the Lord's Supper is a ministry to the outcast. We'll be bringing some of our uh, recap from, uh, we'll have a recap from some of our previous episodes and how it ties into uh, this ultimate lesson for today, but I would encourage you, if you haven't and you're just joining us in this part of the series, to go back and listen to some of the older ones, our most recent one, uh, Service and Greatness at the Lord's Table. Uh, We're looking at this subject uh, through Luke's gospel primarily. We do reference some of the others, but Luke's gospel is really the lens that we're Uh, viewing this subject through. Uh, So if you haven't listened to any of those, definitely go check those out here. And I would encourage you uh, just to go to thinkingtheologically.org. You'll find all of those episodes in a nice, neat order. Uh, But you'll also find uh, an article called The Problem with the Bible's One Unified Voice, which is something that you haven't seen if you haven't visited thinkingtheologically.org or if you haven't liked us on Facebook at Thinking Theologically. Uh, we put bonus stuff up there sometimes and uh, hopefully hopefully more uh, along the way uh, with, with some ideas that we have. So definitely check out thinkingtheologically.org. Definitely like us on Facebook at Thinking Theologically and uh, we'd encourage you to reach out uh, at strongchurchministries at gmail.com for any comments, questions, criticisms, stuff like that uh, that you'd like to throw our way. And you can get a hold of us uh on Facebook, uh on our personal Facebook pages or on Twitter and everywhere else if you'd like to talk to Spencer directly. You know, if you if you really want to get a hold of him, send him the same message on every platform. Uh and he'll be glad you did that. <laughs>
1: I'm so glad.
0: I'll I'm thinking about the the woof scene from uh Office. Those of you that have seen the Office will will know what I'm talking about. Um where you send one message and it goes to everything, email, fax, text, phone call, all at the same time. Uh, so definitely send that to Spencer, and he'll be he'll be excited for all of the, the interaction. <laughs> all right, we're talking about ministry to the outcast uh, with the Lord's Supper here today. And as I said a moment ago, we're going to uh, recap some of the previous discussion before we get into the actual... Uh, I guess we'll say meat of this particular episode uh, in discussion here. Uh, so I'm just going to let Spencer run with uh, really th- there'll be two points in our, our show notes here. Uh, Jesus definition of his ministry uh, as as it's laid out in Luke chapter 4 uh, and also uh, the times that we see Jesus uh, at the table with with others. Uh, and then we'll bring all that together in the uh, in the actual Luke 22. Uh, pass. Uh, well, I was going to say Passover, which is kind of true. Uh, the the Lord's Supper conversation there uh, it's in a the moment. Passover
1: too. Yeah. so that works.
0: All right. Uh, uh, define the ministry and talk <clears throat> about some meals uh, without cast. Go ahead, Spencer.
1: Yeah. Uh, so this is something that we have hit on periodically as we looked at the some of the different unique things in Luke's version of the Last Supper. So that's kind of what we've been doing. These different. Angles of thinking about the Lord's Supper, thinking about it as, as a Passover meal, thinking about it as a foretaste of the eschatological banquet, under, thinking about its significance for the forgiveness, the salvation that is found in Jesus, the service of Jesus, uh, and the service that Jesus taught his followers, particularly his disciples, to emulate above status and greatness are all... In light of things that are unique to Luke's version of Last Supper, Luke does some things with this story that are unique that highlight some of these uh, things. But it's all it's all tied back into the major themes in Luke's gospel. And I'm actually right now at, at my church, I'm preaching a series on the Lord's Supper, again, based upon my thesis. I'm getting a lot of work out of it. Oh, yeah. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> We're starting out, I'm spending three lessons just kind of giving some background to themes in Luke's gospel that come back up. We didn't really do this. I didn't think it was necessary in the podcast series to do that, but it was, I think, necessary for my congregation to to talk about some of that background information. But Luke here in The Last Supper brings together all of these themes together, and the one theme that kind of connects... All of this other stuff together is um, Jesus' ministry to the outcasts. So, the place that I like to go in Luke's gospel to really get an understanding of how Luke wants his readers to think about the ministry of Jesus is Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is beginning his ministry, he has been baptized, the Holy Spirit descended upon him as as he rose up out of the water the spirit then leads him out into the wilderness where he is tempted and with all of that taken place jesus is now ready to begin his ministry in luke chapter 4 jesus enters into his hometown of nazareth he goes to the synagogue he opens from the prophet isaiah and he begins to read a mashup of isaiah 61 and isaiah 58 where he says that the spirit of the lord is upon me because he has anointed me that Anointing refers back to his anointing of uh, at his baptism, the anointing by the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And that is what confirms Jesus as the Messiah. So the word Messiah, which is the, the Hebrew word, uh, the Greek equivalent is Christ. Both of those mean anointed one. They refer to one who is anointed, whether that be a king or a priest. Or We even have in the Septuagint an example of one prophet who was... Uh, anointed so and luke is actually presenting jesus as the as an anointed prophet but that's not important for what we're talking about that's another thing in luke's gospel mm. but with that being said jesus says the spirit of the lord is upon me because he has anointed me that defines jesus as the messiah as he continues to read from isaiah what he's doing is he's now describing what kind of messiah he's going to be he begins by saying i am the messiah because i've been anointed by the Spirit." Now, here's the type of Messiah that I'm going to be. I am going to bring good news to the poor and release to the captives and sight to the blind. I'm going to release those who are oppressed. Uh, we talked about under forgiveness, that theme of release. Uh, the release is a theme in Luke's gospel, and it's most often translated as forgiveness, the idea of being released from sin. But what we see there at the very beginning is Jesus saying that his ministry is going to be f- defined as a ministry to the outcast? For Jesus to proclaim good news to the poor, the poor were outcasts. They were at the bottom of society. So were people who were captives. So releasing the captives is a ministry to the outcast. Giving sight to the blind. Uh, people with disabilities were outcasts. They were at the bottom of society for a variety of different reasons, you can think about someone with disabilities, they're unable to work, so they're probably poor unless they have a wealthy family to really rely on. Certain disabilities prevented you from going into the temple. You can go and read Old Testament some of the the qualifications of who can who cannot enter the temple. So there might be a little uh, bit of being a religious outcast. And connected to the idea of religious outcast, it was believed that people who had disabilities had so because of sin. Sin and disabilities were connected to one another. You think about, it's not in Luke's gospel, it's in John, but you have the people ask Jesus when he's presented with a blind man, who sinned? The man or his parents? Yeah. So you see the connection there between so for, for someone to be blind or to have any kind of disabilities people with disabilities is also a theme in Luke. We've talked about the parable of the great banquet in Luke 14 where Jesus says it's the uh, the blind the and the the crippled and the lame who are invited to God's table so you have the inclusion of those with disabilities all of which would have been connected to sin. so you think about people with disabilities as outcast releasing those who are oppressed, by definition, being oppressed is being an outcast, right? You don't You don't yeah. oppress the people that you are including. You don't oppress the people that are at the top of society. You oppress those who are excluded. Sometimes you oppress people by excluding them by saying you are not allowed here that is oppressing. Uh, we think of, in my mind, I go back to segregation. Right. So you in in the United States to tell a black person you are not allowed here, you're not allowed to drink from this water fountain or to use this bathroom or to be in this restaurant or to be on this part of the bus is to uh, press someone uh, to exclude someone in that way is oppressive. Yeah, that's why we had the the, the civil rights movement, because it, it was there's for those of you that that are familiar with history there was the the statement of separate but equal which people realized separation is not equal to separate or to exclude is by definition not to be equal it is to oppress so jesus defines his ministry as a ministry to the Mm outcast because it's a ministry to the poor and the captive and the blind and the oppressed and luke is going to go on through his throughout the gospel to show us how jesus carries that out so i like to define luke 4 18 and 19 is where jesus is reading from isaiah Isaiah. to call that jesus he like gives his job description and then says look i'm gonna go do my job i'm gonna do what i came here to do and one of the places that jesus does at the best is at the table and we've talked about that a little bit I don't remember now which episode exactly it was. It it might have been in the last one. But we talked about how meals and tables were places of inclusion and exclusion. Who is invited and who's not invited because tables reflect social status. You only eat with people of the same social status as you. You only eat with people who can repay you in the way that you have paid them and inviting them to the meal or you might even at times eat with people who are at a higher level in society as a higher level in society but only for the purpose of moving up in society so uh, meals were places of inclusion and exclusion and so Jesus very intentionally in Luke's gospel is presented as living out a ministry of including the excluded by doing so at tables, which were places of inclusion and exclusion. That's not accident. Jesus goes to the place where status is shown to subvert the status of his day. And you can go through and you can think about all the different meals that Jesus has. There are, in addition to the Lord's Supper in Luke 22, there are seven other Meals He eats with Levi in Luke chapter 5. He eats with Simon the Pharisee in Luke chapter 7. He eats with Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10. He eats with Pharisees and lawyers in Luke chapter 11. He eats with Pharisees again in Luke chapter 14. He eats with Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. And he eats with two disciples in Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. But one of the things that's interesting is you read through those, and you read through other stories, and the Pharisees constantly get mad at Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners who were outcasts. Tax collectors were seen as dishonest traitors. They were Jews working for their Roman captors, so they had forsaken the Jews. Tax collectors would pay in advance to Rome the taxes that they were supposed to collect, and then they would go out and collect taxes with the hope that what they collected was more than what they had paid, giving them a profit. And so it was a system that was primed for abuse. So they were abusive, they were dishonest, they were oppressors, they were traitors. The sinners in Luke's gospel, I have a whole chapter where I argue who the sinners are, but I think the sinners are the wicked, the bad of the bad, they're people that everybody recognizes as sinners. They're probably people who intentionally broke the law. We're, not, we're probably not talking about people who are ignorant, who break the law and don't know that they're breaking the law, but probably people that intentionally break the law. So, especially in Jewish culture, those people would be excluded. You mm-hmm. don't want to have anything to do with a traitor. You don't want to have to do with anyone that intentionally says, you know what? No, I'm not going to follow the law of Moses. I'm not going to follow the law of our ancestors. And these are the people that Jesus eats with. In chapter 5, Levi, who he calls to be a disciple, is a tax collector. And then he goes over to his house and eats with him and other tax collectors. In Luke chapter 19, you have the story of Zacchaeus, who is a tax collector and rich, He's gotten wealthy by cheating people out of their money. This isn't a yeah. poor tax collector, uh, but a very wealthy tax collector. And Jesus goes and eats with him as well and brings salvation to Zacchaeus' house. And these stories illustrate for us how Jesus lived out a ministry, particularly around the table, of including those who would typically be excluded and that theme that jesus defines in luke 4 and that jesus lives out in his meals with tax collectors and sinners uh, particularly examples being levi in chapter 5 and zacchaeus in chapter 19. you even think about the sinner in luke chapter 7 the sinful woman that comes in and anoints jesus feet when jesus is eating with simon the pharisee and simon th- sees this woman as an intruder to the table she's a sinner so she doesn't belong And Jesus sees this woman as where she ought to be. She ought to be at the table with Jesus. So even in that story, you have Jesus kind of reversing and trying to change the way that Simon views people, that not to view people such as this woman as sinners who are excluded, but sinners who are included. Hmm. And that theme that's throughout the gospel is brought to bear in the way that also in the way that Luke tells the story of the last supper.
0: Yeah. um, Like, like you said at the beginning, when you have uh, towards the beginning of Luke's gospel, where you have Jesus saying, Hey, here's my mission statement. Now I'm going to go out accomplishing my mission. A lot of that mission accomplishment happens uh, around these times of, of eating Uh, these, uh, uh, and a lot of these are very short uh, uh, short interactions that were given textually speaking uh, about Jesus sitting with. Uh, but there are some key uh, there are some key interactions that take place there uh, with the outcasts, and uh, like we mentioned a little bit too, with those that have a problem with Jesus eating with the outcasts. Uh, but those might be sections that we, have a tendency to kind of gloss over and go, okay, sure, yeah, Jesus is eating, and yeah, great, you know, let's move on. Let's, let's get to the miracles. Let's get to the—but the, the sitting down and having these meals is Jesus fulfilling his mission, accomplishing uh, his, his ministry here and what he is setting out to do. Uh, it's not separate from that or just some thing. It's all, it's all connected uh, into what he's trying to accomplish here. Uh, which all becomes important with the actual uh, focus of our episode today, Uh, the discussion at the table about the one who will betray, uh, talking about Judas there. Uh, And what Luke does with that is a little different than what we'll see uh, with the other two synoptic gospels, and we will mention that uh, briefly here. Um, But understanding that the meals that Jesus has is a part of Jesus's Uh, Accomplishing of his ministry uh, really brings, uh, really, really comes to climax here in Luke chapter 22, uh, verses 21 and 22, where we're going to focus in on here. Uh, Spencer, tell us about why this uh, predicting of his betrayal is such a a big deal uh, in Luke's
1: gospel. So my favorite part of Luke's version of the Last Supper is when Jesus predicts Judas' betrayal. Uh, At the end of the supper, so Jesus has, they've had the Passover meal, Jesus has already reinterpreted the Passover in light of his passion, that is, he has already instituted the Lord's Supper. It's after the Passover meal, after the Lord's Supper, this is what Jesus says, Luke 22, verses 21 and 22, "'But see, the one who betrays me is with me, and his hand is on the table.' the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that one by whom he is betrayed. The interesting thing about these words of Jesus is that in Matthew and Luke, this prediction comes before the Lord's Supper. So, the, the Passover meal begins with Jesus predicting the his betrayal— and then you have the meal and you have the Lord's Supper. And we, we've mentioned this before, but it, it's generally accepted, and this is the viewpoint that, that we're coming from, that uh, Luke used the Gospel of Mark in the composition of his gospel. So the, the version of the Lord's Supper that he has available to him begins with the prediction and then moves to the Passover meal, uh, to the Lord's Supper meal. So what that means is that Luke intentionally moves this prediction of Jesus from the beginning of the meal uh, to the end of the meal, which is Mm. significant. It it leads us to the question of why would Jesus do this? And that comes, I want to make a little side note. I was, I read a a book that was a debate between, I want to say it was Craig Evans and Bart Ehrman over whether or not the Gospels are historically accurate. Can they be trusted to reveal actual yeah. history? Um, and one of the phrases that Bart Ehrman used that, that I really liked is he talked about his language was reading the Gospels horizontally instead of vertically. So vertically, you start at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew and you read down the page and then up to the next page, and just read through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, That's what he calls reading vertically. For him, reading horizontally is you read one story in Matthew and then you read the same story in Mark and then you read the same story in Luke and you notice the differences. And so when you read the Lord's Supper text horizontally, that's one of the differences you notice is that Luke has moved this saying from the beginning of the meal to the end, which signals in our brain, if we're reading horizontally, why? Why would Luke wouldn't do that by accident or just because he's got to have a reason why does he do that so keep that question in our minds we'll come back to it in a moment Uh, the other difference is that luke changes judas's hand being in the bowl to at the table which to me is very interesting Mm -hmm. matthew and mark have jesus hand have judas's hand in the bowl jesus says that the betrayer's hand is at the table and i think first that highlights the table thing right? The theme in Luke's gospel is Jesus at table. He's sitting at tables and Luke is bringing together these table themes in the Lord's supper, which is happening at a table. And so I think that's part of the reason is I think Luke is signaling for us. Uh, remember the table thing. Like don't, don't forget it now. Uh, Judas' hand is at the table, and that signals for us to think about Jesus and tables and what all that means and the way that Jesus has defined his ministry and the way that Jesus has defined the kingdom of God while at the table. It also, I think, increases the intimacy of this moment, right? It's intimate that Judas is a disciple. It's intimate because he's sharing this meal with Jesus, that he is included in the Last Supper, but the idea of his hand being at the table is an even more intimate reference than his hand just being in the bowl. And so by heightening this table theme, and then by moving the mention of Judas to the conclusion of the supper, Luke leads the reader through this intimate scene of Jesus' table fellowship with his disciples, uh, an incredibly intimate scene in light of the familial ties around the celebration of passover if you listen to the episode that we talked about passover we talked about the family connection that you would sit down with your family people who are very very close to you that's you take the passover with so this is a very intimate context and luke leads the reader through this intimate table fellowship that jesus has with his disciples before introducing the reader to the betrayer who has been at the table the entire time. Imagine that you're reading the gospel of Luke for the first time. I I do this all the time uh, at the church that I'm at when we're studying something. I have them think about, remember that you're reading this like you're reading this for the first time, because typically we read stories and we miss some of what the author is doing because we know the conclusion of the story before we start, right? It's... Very few, and, and, and there are some, and I know people who read the Gospels for the first time and are just shocked that Jesus dies, and then are even more shocked that he's raised from the dead, but generally, people know how the story ends before they start it, yeah. and so they miss some of the literary things that the authors are doing, and, and this is one of the case. Think about Think about reading this for the first time. At the beginning of the chapter in Luke 22, Judas already agrees to betray Jesus. Luke specifically tells us that Satan has already entered into Judas. Judas has already made that decision. And now we move to the Lord's Supper. And Luke tells us in verse 14 that when the hour came, Jesus took his place at the table and his apostles were with him. So imagine you're reading this for the first time. You might be wondering, well, is Judas included? We know that Judas is an apostle, but he's decided to betray Jesus. Maybe you think he's not included. Like, why why would Jesus allow his betrayer to be a part of this intimate meal with him? It, It doesn't necessarily make a ton of sense for the casual reader. And so maybe that's what you think when you get to this place. Maybe you think by that reference, oh, Judas is with them. I didn't expect that. That's weird. That's odd. But you have these questions. You don't quite know. And then Luke tells us of the Passover meal. And then Jesus reinterprets the Passover in light of his passion. He predicts that he's going to die and that is what this supper emulates and maybe you even read that and you forget about Judas because this is a pivotal Mm -hmm. moment in Mm -hmm. Jesus story maybe you forget about Judas and then you read the betrayer is there he is at the table he partook in the meal he partook in the last supper the last supper that looks towards Jesus passion that is only going to be made possible because of Judas' betrayal. And yet he's there. He's at the table. It would be, for a first-time reader, a very big shock. And that is why Luke moves it to the end. He moves it to the end because it shocks the reader. And Luke wants to make a point. He is trying to make a point about Judas being at the table, and this is what it is. Uh, Jesus then, in light of all this, he institutes the Lord's Supper while holding table fellowship with Judas, a sinner who, like I said, has already decided to betray Jesus. The Lord's Supper is the fullness of Jesus' table fellowship with sinners. Well, We talked about at the beginning, Jesus does this throughout the gospel. Tax collectors and sinners, tax collectors and sinners, tax collectors and sinners. These are the people that Jesus is eating with. The Pharisees don't like it. But it's a fulfillment of Jesus' mission, going back to Luke chapter 4, and the Lord's Supper is the fullness of this table fellowship of Jesus with sinners. There is no greater sinner in Luke's gospel than the one who decides to betray Jesus, and there is no greater scene of table fellowship than Jesus' intimate gathering with his disciples, for he breaks bread and pours out wine in a foreshadowing of his passion. The presence of Judas at the Lord's table solidifies Jesus' acceptance of even betrayers at his table and that i think should be a shocking statement even if we've read the story before that jesus is accepting even betrayers at his table he allows judas to be there yeah to take part as a full participant yeah and then brings up the betray the betrayal
0: uh just a uh, well I, w- I was trying to go through the the exercise um something that i will very likely adopt by the way uh in in future teachings of my own uh but then just continuing on with uh, some uh, a section we already discussed uh, i think a couple episodes ago about greatness at the table that there's this there's for the reader this this big bombshell thing and the disciples just kind of move into the <laughs> the greatness discussion and then you have peter being told uh, that he'll deny and it's like man just one thing after the other it feels like this story is unraveling uh on on a first time read like everything's falling apart they're missing they're missing all the stuff uh just
1: let me let me add something to that real quick yeah Uh, notice the notice the repeat with uh peter uh of satan so satan enters judas heart Verse 3, I think, uh, yeah. beginning of the chapter. And yeah. then in verse 31, Satan has demanded to sift mm-hmm. Peter. So, like you said, you think about it a first time reading and things falling apart. It's falling apart by the power of Satan. Yeah, and, and it appears that evil is beginning to win. And just imagine things appearing that way. You're reading it for the first time and then Jesus dies evil does win so it seems right satan seems to actually win uh and uh luke it's actually the the idea of satan in in this chapter is kind of unique to luke uh, i'm not 100 sure about the parallels to peter's denial but i know matthew i think says the devil enters um judas uh but Luke uses a proper name, Satan. Hmm. Well, it's actually not a name. That's a. We're not going to have a Greek lesson today. New, te- but, New Testament kind of
0: idea anyway. Uh, intertestamental idea. Whatever. <laughs> we'll, <laughs> we'll deal with that another time. Um,
1: yeah, no, that's, but that's interesting. That is yeah. you, the, the Satan thing is a unique theme to Luke 22 because he does change from devil to Satan at the beginning of the chapter. Uh man, and there's all sorts of
0: stuff. I, I think we're still planning to do some uh, spiritual battle stuff as a series um, next, uh, whenever we get to that. And so the defeating with prayer thing that follows that too. Uh, don't let me forget Luke 22. That's uh, <laughs> that's a good section.
1: Uh, Satan, Satan sifting Peter is not in Matthew, Mark, or John. Oh, okay, okay. The denials in so, all of them, though, right? The denials in all of them. Yeah. Satan playing a role in that is a Lucan thing.
0: Okay. Yep. So, and what what apparently is uh, a sort of uh, a bookend sort of deal for us here. Uh, so very good. Wow. Yeah. Uh, sitting with the sitting with the one who will betray him, but which which would be a shocking thing uh, again, unless you've been really paying attention to the meals Jesus has been having throughout the gospel and his purpose throughout the gospel.
1: Yeah. Go ahead. That's an interesting that's an interesting way you put that because you could almost I I think it would be shocking because you don't I don't know who would expect that. Sure. But like you said maybe we should have expected that because there's sinners at every other table that Jesus sits at. Why not this one?
0: Uh, It's like the, well, it's, and of course all this is written, but it's very much the uh, principle with movies or television shows and all this, that better storytelling comes through showing instead of telling. Uh, Now, Obviously Mm -hmm. all this stuff is being written here, but you don't have Luke like saying, you know, hey, by the way, pay attention to the, it's just, always there in these little sections of Jesus eats with these kinds of people. Yeah. And there is there is a shock to, I can't believe one of the disciples is the guy. Like that's that's where all of this, stuff, that, there is shock element to it. Uh, but if, the, there is this whole like, oh, well, okay, yeah. I mean, this is who Jesus eats with. I didn't expect it to be one of his, but wow. <laughs> and even when so, he knows he's in he, he's gonna he's still gonna eat with this guy
1: something that i would recommend if those listening have never done this and i hope this doesn't come off wrong i imagine you haven't done this it's not a thing that people well, normally do
0: look at the master over
1: here <laughs> uh but Uh, The next time you're studying a gospel and you're reading a commentary, try to find a literary commentary. And what that's going to do is it's going to interpret the gospels as literature. So it Mm -hmm. it may bring you some PTSD of being in English in high school. (laughs) Uh, But thinking about the gospels in terms of plot and tone and character development and protagonist and antagonist and because they are works of literature and yes i think sometimes we read them too often as history textbooks and not works of literature this we will probably have another discussion later yeah on this because i want Uh, my interest is in the gospels and the historical jesus like the debate how historically accurate are are the gospels historically accurate just a brief foreshadow of whenever we come to this Uh, my answer to that question would be yes and no uh there is history they are not history textbooks they are primarily works of literature and when we don't read them like that we miss what they're primarily doing uh And it's very, to me, that just unlocked things about the gospel when you start thinking about them like works of literature. And not to say that the gospels aren't trustworthy, but I think you almost get more out of the gospels by reading them as historical fiction than as a history textbook, because you say yeah, they're talking about historical things, but a book of historical fiction is, yeah, the, the time period and things are real, but I'm also writing literature. And I think you almost get more out of the Gospels because the, like Judas, doesn't become just a historical fact. You now put it into this grander, almost theatrical context of the Gospel of Luke. Hmm. That's when it becomes mind blowing when you read it in the literary context and don't just look at it like a historical bullet point.
0: Yeah, we actually we'll we'll have some questions to consider here in just a moment. But along those lines, uh, and and I haven't read the books, though, or or seen the first movie for that matter, um, though, I'm somewhat interested now, but the trailer for the second uh, Dune movie or the part two mm-hmm. of the, the Dune movie came out. And a lot of the com- the comments underneath uh, the, uh, I can't, I don't know how to uh, pronounce his name, Denis, the, the, the producer or the director of the movie, just very artistic shots and all this stuff. But the comments below are a lot of people who have read the series and very familiar with it. And a lot of their analyzing of the video is, Oh man they really captured what the book has or if you you know read through there are these nods to this there's even a phrase there's even a phrase in the first uh in in the part one that the casual watcher would go oh that's referring to this guy Uh, but it's probably referring to something else entirely if you've read the book you know that sort of sort of thing uh, and so it's a nod to the readers and all that. My point in saying all of that, and this happened with the Harry Potter books in and in the movies, and I did read those books and saw those movies, uh, is that a lot of those as you said you know to, to treat it as historical fiction again he didn't say that it was by the way just so we're clear on that yeah uh, no, to anybody who wants nobody to nobody find
1: me on social media That's right. i didn't i said maybe read them like that but not i didn't say they were and there's
0: merit to that because uh, things like dune or game of thrones or harry potter all of these works of of fiction people will really dive into oh they used this phrase that must be a reference back to two books ago, whenever this kind of people really dig into those sorts of things. And you kind of do that when you approach something exegetically. And and hopefully your preachers and teachers do that uh, a lot of the time uh, to dive in those things exegetically and look at words and recurring words and things like that uh, and how and when they're used. Uh, But that's really something we should be doing with, uh, with the biblical text, because man, there's just so much more that uh, I guess we'll say unlocks that way. Uh, so many things that you would miss on a cursory reading that you would uh, you just you wouldn't get it there, but if you really got into it and went, man, this word keeps coming up, why? Uh, and asking that question uh, really just opens so many more things up. I wouldn't say changes everything that you think about these texts, but deepens so many of those and might change some things, but really brings depth to uh, your your uh, theological beliefs. Speaking of questions, uh, we wanted to end with a few to consider here, though we may have, I brought something up before we started recording that we'll, we'll talk about a little bit here, I think. Uh, but question number one, uh, I guess, i'll read these and throw these out here and all this is sin a reason to exclude uh from from the table when you wrote that question down um uh what what maybe did you have in mind and we didn't discuss how we were going to discuss this so that may be on the spot but uh, why that question
1: i think well what in in writing down these questions to consider what was going through my mind is when you really understand what Luke is doing with Judas and you allow that shock v- value to hit you Yeah, and you sit with it, right? You You sit with this reality that Jesus invited and allowed Judas to be at the table with him in possibly the most intimate moment in the story. Mm-hmm. We could debate on that. It's definitely, I would say, top three. I could think of some others that you might want to put over it, but one if not the most intimate scene in Jesus' story. And you sit there with this this reality, it like you said if if you take in the theme in Luke's gospel, you might expect it, but I I think I would argue that modern Christians if they, if we hadn't just done what we did, and you ask someone on the street, do, is sin a, a reason a practicing Christian is sin a reason to exclude? I I think that your the answer would be y- yes and no. I think in my interactions sure. with people, it's like you know you don't say you can't come in our doors or something like that but there's a limit to the inclusion i think for most sure there's a limit to it um i and i so i wonder does the story of judas in indicate that there isn't because if there was anyone to say no you can't be at this table it would be judas at the last supper yeah yeah And yet Jesus doesn't do that. So I, again, it's, I don't, I I don't want to answer that for you. I I want you to sit with it. And then I I think what that does though, is that it makes us think about where we draw boundaries of exclusion. Yes. And whether or not that's where Jesus would have. So, and maybe even that Jesus never. Yeah. Never, never would, never would, never would draw hard and fast boundaries?
0: Um, this is what the question made me think about, and we discussed it a little bit, but you said, let's talk about it in the in the actual, in the podcast. So I'm thinking of, I was thinking about 1 Corinthians 11 and Paul discussing the Lord's Supper there, and we have talked already um, maybe a couple episodes ago, I think, uh, about forgiveness and salvation. Uh, the phrase, for you, stuff like that, how um, Paul and Luke, who were, Sometime travel companions uh interacted in this sort of thing uh we we said that Luke was doing a Pauline thing, right and got that from Paul is that yeah, okay,
1: yeah, I think he got phrases like for you from Paul okay, well, I was because only Paul and Luke have certain phrases, yeah, for you is one of them, and I think Luke steals that from Paul. Um, and,
0: and again, Luke, if, if anybody has a problem, if yeah, new covenant, covenant's the other one. one. Um, if anybody has a problem with that or saying like Luke looking at Mark's gospel or whatever, I would encourage you to read the opening verses of Luke to
1: Luke tells us he does (laughs) to uh, be told how he compiled this, that out there
0: (laughs) (laughs) again, that's, that is inspiration. That's not like, anyway, um, So in 1 Corinthians 11, you have that discussion of, and and maybe I'll just read these few verses, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and eat so the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body uh, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then he wraps it up from there. But that, that whole idea there, I was... Uh, that, that's what this question made me think of. Is sin a reason to exclude? And then you have Paul not necessarily excluding, though I have in, in my conversations uh, with others, you know, had that that discussion of, you know, if your heart's not in the right spot or you're involved in this, that, or the other thing, you know, don't take the Lord's Supper because, uh, and gone to First Corinthians 11. So there has been, Uh, exclusionary ideas uh, around sin and the Lord's table from that text, whether that's what Paul is saying. uh, That's how I've heard that text used a number of times. Uh, And so I I was, what this question made me think of is, man, does Paul kind of have the Judas thing in mind, especially since he traveled with Luke, you know, is, is there, did they discuss these sorts of things? And then Paul, as he's putting this stuff down is like, Judas did not. <laughs> Judas did not consider what he was doing, what was actually happening here at the table, the the importance uh, of the table, and who he was with, Jesus and the disciples, and and all of the stuff, the ministry things that Jesus was doing. Uh, he didn't consider that at all, and look at the look at the outcome. Um, I was just wondering if that how that maybe fit into this question or. Uh, yeah, you know, I don't know how much of that you want to pursue here. Uh but what what do you think about that? Um
1: Yeah. what what's a couple, Paul got going on? <laughs> a couple of things. I think it's interesting that it in that text, if you want to think about it as exclusionary, um it's not Paul saying that people should exclude others, it's people excluding themselves, which I think is interesting. Yeah. Um yeah. The only example the only possible example of people excluding someone from the table, and I say it's a possible, because we can debate the exact meaning, but I I, I think it, it's at least part of what Paul's getting at. In First Corinthians, you've got the the man who's sleeping with his father's wife.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And he's told to be put out and Paul says, Do not even eat with such a one.
0: Okay. Um sure.
1: I mentioned that in a footnote in my thesis. I'm like, this is in, in, in arguing for inviting sinners to the table, which is what I was doing, I footnote that this is the one possible exception. Like the mm-hmm. the obvious exception. And that's still different than what's going on in Luke's gospel. This is a Christian who has been a Christian who has been sinning and has been instructed not to and still is. And then Paul's like, okay, put him away. Um, So you could, that's a very unique case in and of itself. Yeah, Even even if there is an exception to what we're talking about, it's a very small exception. Well, and even then
0: that's like a wholesale thing. That's a holistic out of the body thing. That's not just, yes, table it's it's not just
1: you can't take the lord's supper it's that you're out of the church in order to hopefully get them to repent and come back in that's paul's whole point right um but when the 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 other thing and we discussed this a little bit before we we started the episode of what in my mind seems to be going on in first corinthians 11 the, the problem in 1 Corinthians 11 is that there, there is division within the body. The Corinthians are divided at the table, which is antithetical to the table, right? It's yeah. the exact opposite. Yeah. That's what we've been talking about. Luke makes that point better than anybody else. Um, I, I think... Luke would say it's wrong because Jesus' table practices were inclusive. I think Paul would say it's wrong because I think in Paul's mind, he's thinking that you can't take of the body of Christ in the bread when the body of Christ, the church, is divided. Like those things don't, you can't, it's like talking out of both sides of your mouth almost. Yeah. I, th- I think that's what... Because Paul goes to the unity of the body in the very next chapter. And that's more of a... Paul's not that concerned with inclusivity because he's talking to insiders. Yes. Luke's doing something a bit different. Um, Luke's, I think, writing to, to insiders, at least partly as well. Uh, at th- That's a debate for another day who, who Luke is, sure. is writing to. But... Uh, Paul's doing something different than Luke, and Paul emphasizes different things, and I think all-inclusive is not one of Paul's primary emphases in his uh, writings, but the unity of the body is. And so Paul says to examine yourself and to discern the body, and we kind of talked about the first two times body is used, it's Jesus' physical body as resembled in the bread— and that I think when he says for us to uh, it, it discern the body, I think it's being used of to think about d- discern is just to think about. Yeah. Right. I think he's saying when you take the Lord's Supper, you think about Christ's body. And to think about Christ's body, you think about what Christ did in that body. And Luke would say Jesus was inclusive in his body. But to think about what Christ did in his body, it, you have to think about how you em, emulate that within the body of Christ, within the church. Mm-hmm. The church, as the body of Christ, is to live in the way that Christ did in his body. And that, but that also incorporates our bodies, our physical bodies. You and I are part of the body of Christ. We become in the church, multiple bodies become one body. But the way that we live, contributes to the way that the body operates. And for us to live in a way that divides the body of Christ, i.e. the church is for the church to live in a way that is the opposite of the way that Jesus lived in his body. And I I think Paul's point is first, you can't take the Lord's supper and not think about that. And to think about that means you have to do something about it. And so I think Paul's point is solve that problem first. And then we can come back to the table yeah and it almost seems to me i just thought of this but i wonder if paul would have addressed it differently if it had happened like once like i to to me paul's words almost seem like there's a difference between a church that you know i don't know maybe for years has been taking the lord's supper while divided and so maybe he's saying how have you not thought of this yet maybe Hmm. Maybe yeah. it's not a a, a a thing of you can never, but uh, guys, you've been missing it for a long time. So stop and fix the problem that maybe the problem that taking the Lord's Supper should have fixed. And, and that's something interesting. We're not there yet in where we want to get in this Lord's Supper series. But where I want to get is an open communion that is open to the believer and the non-believer. And I argue in my thesis that what the Lord's Supper does is it allows the non-believer as well as the believer to experience the risen Jesus, and that experience is transformative. So it's possible that you could argue that Paul is thinking that the Lord's Supper ought to be transformative, and it's not, It's not. it hasn't happened. It's actually divided. Mm. And so Paul's like, you're not taking the Lord's Supper, which he actually says right it's not the it's not the supper that you're taking because you're divided and maybe that's more of a i I haven't thought of it before but maybe it's more of a uh, the fact that it's not transforming you means you're doing something else like you you can't take the lord's supper and encounter jesus and not be transformed and the fact that that's not happening means that something's going wrong like you've got some things you've got to fix and then we can come back to the table. Um, I will say that is an argument that tries to mesh Luke and Paul together. Sure. Which I'm hesitant to do. Because I do think there's a tension. I think Paul Paul seems to be a little bit more exclusionary than Luke is. And you could even argue that maybe Luke is reacting to Paul maybe maybe they don't and i say that go read the article i wrote on the unified yeah, voice. The unified voice um thinking org. uh th- there's there's not one that you, you have these opposing <laughs> views and and it's like it's you don't have to i'm actually fine with whatever you want to do with that sure i uh but you don't have to say that they actually contradict i i think you have to say we can't fully bring everything together but at the same time you can't deny that if that's true if luke and paul are seeing things differently that if they came back from the dead and you put them in the same room they would disagree like it's it's not like oh you misunderstood me we're actually saying the same thing i don't think that's what's going on i think they may actually see things differently um this is kind of getting off track, but I'm going to mention it anyway. I I, I found this very interesting. Uh, there's a it, it was from a guy on TikTok. Okay. And he was talking about this idea of different voices in scripture. And he quoted I want to say Tolstoy. Okay. But I may be wrong. Some philosopher, sure, who's who's now dead. And the philosopher made the point of how contradiction, that things that are not contradictory, and he was applying this to scripture. So scripture was not at all contradictory, that that would actually be a problem, that life is complex, so complex, that what contradiction does is it forces us to think like we're doing now so Luke can say include everyone and Paul can say don't include everyone what that does is it makes us sit there with that and to think and I thought you know that's an interesting way to think about it sure that if you don't have opposing voices we're not forced to sit and think with that complexity and that's not real life Real life is complex. Real life is not black and white. It's in the gray and you have to just sit with it. Yeah. And he was making the point of that's actually what scripture does. That if it, if there wasn't that tension, you don't have to call it contradiction. You can call contradiction. You can call tension. If there wasn't that tension, that would actually be a problem because we wouldn't have it, The scripture wouldn't give us the depth to deal with real life. Sure. Something to think about. Sure. Uh, Another question to consider.
0: Yeah. Well, I actually was going to throw one more thing out real quick. (laughs) To your point about the transformative nature of Lord's Supper, even if you just wanted to stay within Paul in 1 Corinthians, when he moves into that next chapter, like you said, um, talking about the one body and the unified there, which is internal, But in chapter 14, as he's ending that discussion, he starts in chapter 12, uh, there is this uh, briefly, so it's very internally focused about unity, but then it does talk about the unbeliever as they enter in, being able to say amen, or being exposed and falling down before God and acknowledging that God's among them. Uh, So there is this that that's transformative to the people on the outside because of the unity on the inside. So mm-hmm. Paul does have that in mind, I would say. Um, so it's not, I don't know how much, and this might be something good for us to do as a full episode later because we got to move on, but um, I don't know how much tension's actually there between Paul and Luke, at least in, in my estimation, but um, the whole idea of, I know that this is I know that this is not one of the uh, Lord's Supper accounts, but the idea of reading horizontally, like you mentioned earlier, of including this in there since he is making reference to all of that, uh, and seeing what each individual is trying to do uh, in their own writings, but then also how those shift between each of the writings. Good practice. Bring up questions and things to sit with, uh, and, and think about question number two that we had on here is engaging slash fellowship slash spending time with someone always a support of their sins. Again, we're not trying to answer these, but, uh, question to consider with, with everything
1: we've discussed here. Actually, I think I'm just going to answer that and say no, (laughs) Uh, uh, it, it's not. It doesn't uh, appear
0: so in Luke's gospel, for sure.
1: No, and we I I mean I hear that all the time. Again, let's think of tension with Paul. Paul says bad company corrupts good morals. Sure. Uh and uh I, I feel like Luke would say good company corrupts bad morals. Okay. Um I, I feel like I, I feel like Luke would invert because that's what Jesus does. Jesus holds bad company, uh, and, but his, he infects them. Like, I, I don't remember what writer it is, but talks about this idea that now I think he's wrong. He, if I remember right, he's believing that the, the main problem that the Pharisees had with Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners was problems of purity, which is not the case. I don't think there's any way. That's the primary, primary problem. It's That's not it. But this, he does make a good point of the the idea that the impurity of Jesus' table companions does not rub off on him. The purity of Jesus rubs off on them, which is an interesting thing to consider. So I have a
0: Pauline point to bring out <laughs> with that if we want. So yeah, no, dude. Come um, the First Corinthians five passage the the man caught in sexual morality, mm-hmm. right? Um, told to be purged out. Which, by the way, for Christ our Passover Lamb has been said. So Paul Paul is bringing Passover, which would also be table language in the New Testament uh, into the into the picture here, which is fun. Uh, just nice through line stuff. But he at the end of all of that. I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or greedy swindlers, idolaters. Uh, since then, you would need to go out of the world. He said, I'm talking about those who bear the name of brother and do those things, not even eat with such a one. So there is, I think the bad company corrupts good morals, which is also uh, First Corinthians, 1 First Corinthians 10 or 12.
1: Yeah, Paul doesn't even know what he means in his own letter. Well, so here's uh, here's what I would say with that. I
0: think it's Jesus is Jesus knows his mission. Jesus is unwavering from that. <clears throat> but with the divided Christians here, uh, the the bad is going to win out, especially when he starts chapter five with, you've got this guy who's openly doing this thing that not even the pagans would do and it is affecting you the leaven is affecting the whole lump cuz you guys are divided if you were all unified then you would be able to have influence over this man and his sin mm. and change that up so i think what paul's goal is is entirely different <laughs> let's get things right in our house before we start inviting people over and screw them up too
1: and and paul not not so much in first corinthians but in the uh pastorals first second timothy titus yeah paul does have a concern with how the church looks to outsiders so it's important that when you know when he says not even pagans would do that yeah like like come on guys (laughs) i feel like that's what he's saying like come on guys like that yes well there's there's so many problems with this um but it see it. I'm not I've, I'm not I've, sure
0: that Paul would say don't eat with these people even though he doesn't outright uh, I, well I mean he does he does say don't eat with those that bear the name brother. Like I think well, so here's he wants the interesting unity thing. at the table more than anything.
1: He, here's the interesting thing about that, and to me this is where the tension comes in. Okay. Is is I see what you're Paul's Paul's emphasis is typically internal, right? And like you yeah. said, he even says that I'm not talking about people out in the world. I'm talking about the, the the people inside. Um, and that works in Luke every time, except with Judas,
0: which yeah. is why Judas yeah.
1: is so interesting to me. He's sure. an insider, and it, it seems to me that there's a that there is a tension with the way that Luke presents Jesus and Judas at the table and, and some of the more exclusionary practices that Paul implements into his churches. Um, and so it, which forces us to do what we're doing right now, right? And yeah. and think about, sit with, as the, the term right, we've been using, right. to sit with that tension and think about. And To me, that goes to show that when you're presented with a situation, I think sometimes it's easy for us to jump to quick solutions instead of sitting with the tension and discerning what to do. Yeah. Uh, There's not uh, very rarely in my experience is there an obvious way to deal with a problem. We tend to oversimplify. Yeah. Things and so you you think about the the question of supporting sin. I I I know I hear this all the time, all the things that you can't do with people because it will support their sin. And and I hear it, I hear it more often as it has to do with the LGBTQ community. Right. You can't be friends with them. Where you uh, have to exclude family members, or you know, if you had a and 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 I don't want to deal with these in and of themselves maybe someday we we will sure. but i'm just pu- putting out what i hear you know you have a family member who, who's getting married you can't go to the, mer- the the wedding or or whatever it it may be and i i think when we t- ex- talk about those exclusionary practices that that we want to tell people to do i think judas should cause us to at least pause I, sure. Yeah. No. I, like, like you said, I, I, I don't think in this episode we want to answer all those questions, but I think Judas gives us pause to say, wait a minute. Um, I've said this in in sermons before, about how Scripture does seem to indicate that there's times when we have to separate from people. For a whole host of reasons. Yeah. But. I am against complete separation or completely cutting people off. Um, I don't think that's ever the answer. Uh, distancing, may, perhaps. Sure. Uh, for our health or their health or our safety or uh, whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, uh, but completely cutting someone off to me since. To me, cuts against the grain of our mission to people. Sure,
0: more separation than well, you're either together or you're divorced. Okay, well, is there room for we're not together at the moment with the hope that we can be and working towards towards that idea? Uh, But that's a whole it's a whole other thing. I think that that's something Paul would suggest. I think that's a whole. I think that's consistent across the board. <laughs> uh, question number three goes along with what we've been talking about, and we're, we're going a little long here, so we'll maybe just leave this one for everybody else to consider. But uh, is it possible that our response to sin should not be exclusion, but an inclusion which allows them to experience Jesus? Which... Again, when we go back through what we talked about today—the defining of the ministry—and then the meals being a part of the fulfilling of that ministry, ultimately culminating in what we see here with with Judas and the cross, and all all of these pieces coming together there at the table uh, with uh, with a betrayer—is uh, uh, seems to give us an answer to that question that maybe if we were having to answer it quickly, we would go, oh, well, yeah, I'm not so, and challenges uh, that the, idea that we might have.
1: The the last thing that I want to say, yeah. and the, j- just to get people thinking, because this is a very difficult thing to figure out how to put into practice, but um, Miroslav Volf, uh, who at least was, I don't know, I'm not sure if he still is, uh, the head of systematic theology at Yale. Okay wrote a book in Exclusion and Embrace, and he he delves real deep into to this idea. I'm preaching on this a little bit on Sunday, and, and it's a difficult thing for us to wrap our minds around, but he talks about how Volve talks about how any group of people has to have boundaries because otherwise you're not a people, right? Boundaries define who you are, so the, the church is no different well, who is the church? Well, t- answering that question puts up boundaries. Well, yeah. the church is people who, whatever, 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 however you want to define those boundaries, not everybody defines those the exact same, but they're ne- for a people group to exist, it- boundaries are necessary. I've, I'm using on Sunday, the illustration of a kingdom. Kingdoms countries have borders. Yeah. Those are necessary. You need to know where the country begins and you need to know where the country ends. And within the borders of the country, things operate a certain way. Certain things are allowed, other things are not allowed. So when you think about the kingdom of God, there's also borders. You need to know where the kingdom begins and ends. You need to know what it looks like within the borders of the kingdom. But the The very difficult thing is that I think Jesus and Luke illustrates for us that the borders of the kingdom of God are very different than the borders of earthly kingdoms. The borders of earthly kingdoms and of earthly groups tend to be exclusive borders or exclusive boundaries. Uh, these are the people that are inside, these are the people that are outside. They They exist to separate. Mm. The borders of the kingdom are borders that are inclusive. They don't push people away, but they actually draw people in. And I think that's a difficult thing for us to get our mind around because we want to say boundaries. You're in or you're out. And by doing that, we exclude. That's what we want to do, because it's hard for us to wrap our mind around. How do we maintain our boundaries and still being inclusive? and i don't think we can fully answer that question i think that's something that churches always have and always will have to struggle with how do we balance those yeah. how do we have boundaries that don't push people away but that actually draw people in how how do we how do we go beyond our boundaries for the purpose of drawing people in like the boundaries are also not there to protect us like you think about people that can be fearful of leaving the united states i don't want to go beyond the borders jesus would say the borders are here for you to go beyond (laughs) like that like it's almost like the purpose is for you to cross them to bring other people in yeah which is exactly what jesus does by eating with tax collectors and sinners um that's a difficult thing to define yes and each church it will probably look a little bit different But I think that's the tension churches have to sit with.
0: Well, there you go. Uh, Sit with that tension. Consider that question. And I have to imagine that uh, through all of our discussion today, you might have some questions for us to consider. Uh, So send those to strongchurchministries at gmail.com or get a hold of us on Facebook or anywhere else. Uh, for the master resident, if you're interested uh, in talking to him specifically, uh, be sure to check out thinkingtheologically.org for show notes for this episode, as well as previous episodes and other content that we have uh, available there. And uh, I think we're—I think we've got more on Lord's Supper, correct? Coming up?
1: Correct. Fantastic. At least one, maybe two more.
0: One or two more on the Lord's Supper coming up in future episodes. We hope that you are enjoying the series and go through and listen to ones that you've missed so you can be all caught up uh, for this very important discussion on the lord's table i'm jack that's spencer we'll see you next time